The title of our message today is The Maturing Love of the Believer. Maturing Love of the Believer. And if, if you haven't gotten your notes, uh, there's a couple there on, um, it's a few there on the table. Maybe you can raise your hand and have someone to walk it to you. So I normally like putting the outline and then the cross-references. Sometimes I forget adding some of the cross-references, but you can take notes. And this is a sermon that I really want to encourage you to just go back and, and look at your notes. Um, the, this passage in particular, I think when I when I understood uh, the implications it had for my life, it, it was so liberating and encouraging, and I hope that will be encouraging to you as well. Okay? In uh, Portuguese, uh, I always like comparing like the Portuguese with the English, so Lindsay and I have a lot of conversations on those uh, differences in the language, and sometimes I think there's a the difference, this is how we say it, and she's like, this is how we say it, we say the same thing. Uh, but in Portuguese, we call the process of ripening of a fruit, we normally don't use the word ripening, we use the word maturing. So since uh, we moved to our new home, I was pressed to learn more about this process of maturing, of ripening of fruits. We've got seven grapevines in our backyard, and it's a lot of work. Let me tell you this much. You see, when I first saw that our grapes turned purple in last summer, I got excited and I already plucked a couple of them, and, and I chewed on it. And to my disappointment, they were too firm and, and sour. After a lot of research, I understood that the change of color, or what they call Beraisin, I don't know how to pronounce that, but Verizon, Verizon, I don't know. It, what is it? Verizon. There you go, Kathy, thank you. It, it marks the final stages of the maturing of the berry, but it's not quite the end yet. So when the berry grows, um, it begins to soften its skin and its size increases due to large uh, enlargement of the cells while the sugar content of the berry also increases, and then the acidity or the sour taste decreases. During the raisin, <laughs> the berry skins lose its chlorophyll, which causes it lose this green color, and it begins to synthesize other substances called anthocyanins, which gives the red color to the grape. The change in the skin adds a complex mixture of aromas and flavors. I mean, I hope you're already salivating because <laughs> that's, I, I ate a lot of grapes last summer and last fall. Although heat waves and drought can affect this transformation, at the proper season, the fruit is sweet and flavorful. I believe that a maturing fruit is a good picture for the life of the Christian. We have the seed of God planted in us to develop all the godly traits that comes from the Spirit, such as love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. Today we return to our study in 1 John chapter 4, where we have been talking about God's love being perfected in us. And we've seen that this perfected is really a word for matured. As you prepare your minds to approach this text, I hope you can examine your love for God and your love for others. 
Is it as sour as the brackish, the brackish grape that I tried before the ripening season? Is it stale or indifferent? Or is it, a, it is sweeter with time? As we study the true love of produce, uh, that is produced in the life of the believer, we'll also see the counterfeit, counterfeit um, proclamations of faith when it comes to love. I pray that the Lord will convict us through this passage and that he would encourage us. So with no more delaying, First John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. This says the word of the Lord. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come before you with reverence um, to you, to your word. Lord, we have so many concerns and anxieties and fears that might even want to distract us from learning what your word wants to teach us. I pray, Father, that you would set these things aside, and by, the, by your spirit, may you take hold of our hearts, of our minds, and teach us and encourage us and comfort us. We so need you, Lord. We are weak. Uh, this vessel is sinful, and yet you are gracious, and you're so pleased to use uh, weak people to proclaim your words. I pray, Father, that may the power of the gospel, and through the Spirit, will encourage and, and use it to embolden your people in their confidence before you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a little bit of a context of a review here on our study is that in verses 13 and 16 that we studied last week, John has developed that the indwelling of the Spirit produces love in the life of the Christian. The love of God is perfected in, a life, in our lives as we love one another. Earlier, actually, in verse 12, if you go back to verse 12, it says that no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. In other words, as we love one another, this love is made complete in us. But we might have been well left with the question of how such a thing could be possible. How can God's love be perfected? God's attributes are perfection. He is perfection. Consequently, we might wonder how God's love could be perfected in us or anywhere else for that matter. Now John explains his meaning, showing that his emphasis was not so much upon that the love of God has in himself, which is obviously already perfect, but rather upon our love both for God and for one another. That love needs to be matured. 
This has its source, this love has its source in God, and it's brought to completion by him. It is made complete. Here, it does not mean totally without flaw, immoral, or any other sense. It means whole, it means mature, and it refers to the state of mind and activity in which the Christian is to find himself when the love of God is within him, expressing itself in the believer's own life. It has accomplished that which God fully intends to accomplish. So John is not suggesting that any Christian's love could in this life be flawlessly perfect, but rather it is developed and it is mature. It's sacked. Fixedly, it's set fixedly upon God. No doubt there are many aspects of love perfection, but from these greater number, John singles out two of them. So that will be our outline. The first aspect is that there is a confidence, a building confidence in the believer in view of God's coming judgment from verses 17 to 18. A maturing love gives confidence to the believer. And then for verses 19 and 21, there is a character reflection in the love of the brethren. This maturing love produces obedience in the life of the believer. So that's our outline there. So starting off in verse 17, we see that we can be confident in the face of future judgment. First word there says that this word confidence, or in Greek, parousia, is a word that John already used uh, to portray both our unshrinking confidence we should have among Christ's coming. So if you go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, he would use the same word there, this confidence word. What is, what is it about there in 28? Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we might have confidence. That's the word there, being repeated. And not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. This is this bold assurance that we enjoy also as we approach prayer. Uh, verses 21 and 20, 22 it says that if our hearts does not condemn us, we have what? Confidence before God. Whatever we ask in his name, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. So it also impacts our prayer life. So in its context, in chapter 4, the word confidence has a similar meaning. It is a trait of being, un- being willing to undertake activities that involve risk with no fear especially that involved being honest and straightforward in attitude and in speech. That's the kind of confidence that John is talking about here. John gives the context of this confidence. He points out to the future. It is a confidence that will be manifested in the day of judgment. This day of judgment is fixed in God's eternal timetable as any other day in world history. This is the significance of the word day. It's not necessarily, it's not technically a one 24-hour day. Um, but it is referring to the events in the future. But our events, it certainly includes a series of judgment upon the earth. Revelation chapter 6 through 16, you see that the Lord will send 
tribulation in this world. He's judging this world. Um, in chapter 19 of Revelation, the beast and the false prophet are also a judgment to the world. And then uh, Joel, chapter 314, talks about the day of the Lord as referring to the judgment of the Gentile nations. And then on Ezekiel chapter 20, it refers to Israel being judged. And all individuals at the judgment of the great white throne in Revelation 20. So John is not necessarily speaking here of a specific event. He doesn't clue us in. Is he talking about the final judgment, a great white throne, or is he talking about the tribulation time? In any case, the reason it's called the day, it's because it is fixed by the Lord in, a, in his timetable. And it will surely come. That day will come. In view of this logical and alterable day in which the thoughts and deeds of man and woman are to be judged, an individual might well fear. We should fear God's judgment. But the idea of God's judgment is a very unpopular idea today. Right? We see pulpits avoiding to talk about God's judgment. It was ne not necessarily uh, more popular in Jones' uh, time as well. The problem is sim simply this, that men and women do not like the idea of being held accountable for their sins, for their behavior. So they tend to discount the idea that hoping that the day of judgment might just go away. But that doesn't come. doesn't go away. That day will be one of shame and terror for the wicked, but not for the redeemed people of God. Our confidence, like our obedience, and I mentioned in verse 2 and 5, chapter 2, 5, is a sign that our lives have been made complete. It is grounded upon the fact that in this world, we are like him. We are like Christ. To be sure, and I want to clarify this, we're not yet exactly like him in our character, in our bodies. Otherwise, John um, chapter 3, verse 2 here says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it is not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, and because we will see him as he, just as he is. So John is saying, you know, there'll be a time that we'll be transformed and we're going to be exactly like he is. But then now in chapter 4, he's saying, well, there is a sense in which that we already are as he is. What is he talking about here? So in, in the extent that we do resemble him in our conducts, uh, it, the more we walk with God, we will have more Christ-likeness, right? In Verse 3 from chapter 3, if you continue reading, it says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the sanctifying effect of, of God in us make us more like himself. Chapter 2, verse 6 says something similar. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So we will walk like God, and we will look more and more like him. But this is not what John is referring to here, because he's saying that we already are as he is. He's primarily speaking of our standing before God, our standing before God. 
even while remaining in this world, we are already like him. We are sons in and through the Son, begotten and born of God as he was, and the objects of God's love and favor like him. Therefore, if Jesus calls and calls God the Father, we can call God our Father as well. We can share the confidence before God which he enjoys. So John is pointing us to a deep theological truth here. It's a big word here that I'm going to throw to you, but I'm going to explain it to you. He's pointing to what is known as the substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement. Which simply means that Christ is our substitute. He's our substitute. You read in verse 10 that he is, if you go to verse 10 there from chapter 4, what does it say? And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Another big word, propitiation. What is that? The sacrifice. The very sacrifice that brought us forgiveness and that removed our sins from us. So he was a propitiation. He was um, a sacrifice in our place. He was a substitute. Who was supposed to endure death and condemnation? Us as sinners. But Christ substituted us and he took that condemnation upon himself. Now there's more to this substitution than just the negative aspect of Christ suffering the condemnation. It also has to do with the positive aspect, which is Christ imputing his righteousness in us. So if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 21, you will see this substitution made more clear to you. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and we're looking at the very... Um, let's start verse 20, so we get a little bit of context here. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled with God. How do we get reconciled with God? This is, he explains this. He made him, him here is Jesus, so God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, he never sinned, to be sin on our behalf. That is the atonement, that is the propitiation for our sin. He suffered for our sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in Christ, his righteousness now is imputed to us, Remember that Abraham believed God and his righteousness was imputed to him, was given to him. So before God, when he looks at us, he knows that we're sinners. It's not like God is oblivious of what we're doing on this earth. But when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sins. If you have been saved, he sees Christ's righteousness. So that's why John can say, we don't fear condemnation because when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sins. He sees Christ's righteousness. So we are as he is before the Lord. Even though we're still growing in sanctification, still growing in our love. And yet, when Christ sees us, when God sees us, he sees Christ's righteousness that was imputed on us. All right, let's go back to our passage. 
Then what is the implications of, of all of this that John is exploring here? We'll have this confidence in the day of judgment, in the day of judgment because as he is in this world, so are we. Is it possible for a Christian to be a Christian and still be feared, be filled with fear in the view of judgment? Is it? Some branches of the Christian church have encouraged such fear on the part of their followers. There are those who are gripped by fear of death. And, and there was a couple of guys that I counseled. They're very different, distinct situations. One of them was a genuine believer, but was struggling with the fear of death. I don't know, did Christ really forgive me? Did he? And, and this kid was having panic attacks and just gripped, and he wasn't eating and just getting very, very weak. And then the other guy I counseled had panic attacks and, and the depression with fear of death. And it turns out that he, didn't, he wasn't saved. He was afraid because he should be afraid. They're not secure that Christ is your substitution, that Christ has forgiven you. We should fear judgment. So there are those that are gripped by the fear of death. Um, according to Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15, unsaved men are held in bondage. Is the element of punishment the punishment that is plain here. Such fear is really all their lives. They, they fear death. Why, why is that people are so scared of dying? It's because they don't know what comes after. They realize that whatever they've done, one day will be accountable. Only Christ, by his love, can release his people from this bondage. In him, love overcomes fear. Those who, through his first love, have come to love him have no need to fear him. They are able to assure their hearts, as we read in chapter 3, before him in confidence as they think of the day of judgment. Love removes this stinger, this stinger of, from death. Matured love actually enables the Christian to look forward to death or Christ's return. Why is that when we go to Christian funerals, it doesn't seem that people are scared or terrified. Well, because there is a joy and expectation that we're going to be united to our Lord. The man who can do this, can do that, is well on his way toward the elimination of all other fears. Through such confidence, Christians have fiercely faced Lions, they stake in every manner of hardship and deprivation. I mean, read Hebrews 11. You will see that how is this human being, sinners, are able to endure the, 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 the face, you know, to face this challenge of death. It's because their faith in the Lord, their confidence that they have that before God, they will not experience any judgment. We need not to fear any judgment. So to close this point, let's, let's go to Romans 8. Why is that that we don't fear that day in judgment? Why is that that we're not going to shrink away on the day of judgment? Romans 8, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of in Christ Jesus has set you free 
from the law of sin and death. Christians, you should not be afraid of condemnation anymore because whatever condemnation God had for you and me as a sinner has been taken place. Christ has atoned. Christ was the propitiation for our sins so that we can have peace with God. Now, as we see here, John is specifically concerned about the fear of judgment. He expands this this concept of fear contrasted with love a little further. In verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And you see here that he went from a very specific to a broader category of fear. Not just fear of judgment, but any fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. The second uh, sub-point here is that we can be confident with no fear. While John specifically is concerned about the fear of judgment to come and shows how assured love from God and for God erases all such fear, his words also demand a broader application. John seems to be applying a general principle. Perfect love casts out fear to a specific case, obviously the fear of judgment, This is apparent since he analyzes the nature of fear and it affects in general um, anything that involves punishment. The same truth is stated negatively on verse 18. The love that espouses confidence banishes fear. In the same way that we don't fear judgment anymore, we don't have other fears. There is no fear, no servile fear in love. There is no room, as some translation says, for fear in love. They're two incompatible things, like oil and water. We can't love and reverence God simultaneously, according to Hebrews 5-7, but we cannot approach him in love and hide from him in fear at the same time. Romans 8-14-15 talks about that. We can go back there to Romans That is actually a freedom that we have to approach God. Romans 8, 14 and 15 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry, Abba, Father. Did you see the difference? God is not the punisher, the God of wrath that is against our sins. Now he is our father. The Abba expression really is a, a, a daddy from you know, the Hebrew language. He's our endearing father from whom we have completely full access and we don't have a spirit of fear anymore as we enter his presence. Indeed, it is by the love for God that false cringing fear of God is overcome. It flings out out of the doors all fear. The reason why perfect love cannot exist, coexist with fear is now given. Fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. That is to say that fear introduces the category of punishment which is quite alien to God's forgiven children who love God. Even his discipline 
that is not a condemnation for our sins. It is a loving care of our Father that wants to perfect us in his ways. So another way of reading this is that fear includes or brings with it the very punishment that it fears. In other words, fear has in itself something of the nature of punishment. To fear is to begin to suffer in advancement for that punishment already. Once assured that we are like him in verse 17, God's beloved children will cease to be afraid of him. And it is evident, therefore, that the one who fears is not made perfect in love. So fear and love are mutually exclusive. If we're afraid of God, he's going to punish us. We cannot yet be aware of the fullness of his everlasting love. Now, don't, don't get me wrong here. Fear is not bad in and of itself. It is not wrong. God actually implanted all our emotions in man, and even that which lies behind the phrase, the fear of God is a good thing, indicates how proper fear can be, can be when rightly aroused and directed to the proper context. Another example, fear of dangers. Uh, falling off of a cliff. That's why we don't keep going. It's because there is this innate nature in us that prevents us from doing stupid things and hurting ourselves. That leads one to take necessary precautions. It is right and holy so long it rests upon and grows out of faith and trust in the providence of God. In the fact that, yes, there is this danger here, And I'm going to take the precautions that it takes to protect myself or my family. But ultimately, I rest assured that God ultimately is the one that protects me and guards me. In this sense, Jesus undoubtedly entertained a sort of precaution concern. I mean, he saw the danger. They were planting the Pharisees when they were trying to push him off of a cliff. Just walk from that situation of danger. What about the fear of God? Psalm 112, and I think it's good for us to see this, because the fear of God, this reverence that we have before God, that we walk with him, is different than this skittish fear that, we, that John is talking about here, that is incompatible with love. Psalm 112, we're just going to read a few verses here. Psalm 112, starting on verse 1. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So the person that fears God, they're blessed. They're not suffering. They don't, are not thinking about punishment. Who greatly delights in his commandment. I wanted you to note the parallel that in the other half of the verse here is that the person who fears God, they greatly delights in his commandments. Skipping to verse 7 here, what does it say? This person that fears God, he will, f- he will not fear evil tidings. When you hear bad news, he's not going to fear that. His heart is steadfast, it's secure, it is trusting in the Lord. Verse 8, his heart is upheld and he will not fear. Until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries, he has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His his horn will be exalted in honor. So this fear of God causes us to have no fear of man. 
and actually to love men properly and to do what is proper. So all these three verses that we read, it, it really talks about the same word fear there, the fear of the Lord. They use the same word, but it's a different aspect of fear. Someone has said, the fear of God is the one fear that removes all others. The enemy of fear is love. It is the way to put off fear, is to put it on love. Put it on love. Understanding this is key when helping people who are struggling with fear. So I think this was revolutionary when I started, when I grasped this. I was like, wow, I know now how to help people with anxiety. I know now how to help people with fears. It is love. It is not just stopping the bad behavior. It is putting on the behavior that God has uh, provided for us. So in what ways are love and fear mutually opposed? Notice this. I want you to pay attention. Love is self-giving, right? Agape means a sacrificial love. Love is self-giving. Fear is self-protecting, self-preserving. Love moves towards others. Fear shrinks away from others. J. Adams illustrates this point well. He says, love looks for opportunities to give. It asks, what can I do for another person? Fear keeps a weary eye on the possible consequence and asks, what will this person do against me? Love thinks no evil. Fear thinks of little else. Love labors doing today's tasks and is so busy that it has no time to worry about tomorrow. Because, and then um, love labors doing today's tasks that is so busy that it has no time to worry about tomorrow because if focus upon tomorrow, fear fails to undertake the responsibilities of today. The person that is fearful, they're just caught up in the past and, and the responsibilities of today. Love leads to greater love. Fulfilling one's obligations bring peace and joy and satisfaction and greater love and devotion to the work. Fear, in turn, occasions greater fear since failure to assume responsibilities brings additional fear of the consequences of acting irresponsibly. That's the punishment part. I'm afraid of a bad consequence. It might be the loss of something. It might be the, the, the fact of I'm never going to have that something. But love is stronger since it is able to cast out fear. That is a strong word here in Greek, to cast out. In dealing with fear, nothing else possesses the same explosive power. Although under other circumstances, a woman might be frightened by a mouse, a mother is not immobilized by the fear of a wild animal attacking the child that she loves. Same woman that fears a mouse, when she sees a bear about to attack her son, he just fears out of the way. Why? Because her love has an explosive power of that fear. Foolishly or otherwise, her love overcomes fear and casts it out as she throws herself into the fray. Love does demonstrate it itself as greater. J. Adams recounts of a man with a phobia for crossing bridges. This is an illustration that had from his own counseling experience, this guy was so scared of crossing bridges. A week later, he heard that was an auto, uh, automobile accident involving his children. 
he drove heedlessly over two bridges to reach them, experiencing no fear whatever in the process. A few, just a few days before, he refused to cross the same very bridges. The scriptures is filled with promises for the believer to not fear. Christian has not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, as I just read in Romans 8.15. He no longer needs to be terrified over facing God, Hebrews 10.31. Therefore, three times Jesus Christ commands him, do not fear. He's talking to his disciple in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, 28, and 31. He says, do not fear. Such fear is sin. And this same emphasis appears frequently in scriptures. I want to uh, point here, just finish this point with Hebrews 13, 6. It's such a wonderful affirmation. Why is that that we don't fear? This conviction of the love of God gives us this confidence that we need not to fear condemnation, eternal condemnation, and we need not to fear any other thing. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 6. It says, mm, let's start in verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said... I will not desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. In verse 6, so we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? If our confidence and our trust is in the Lord, nothing else will make us scared or fearful. All right? So let's move on to our next point. Maturing love reflects God's character in the believer. And we read here in John that to love God and to hate your brother is to live a lie. Verses 19 and 20. It says, we love because we f- he first loved us. Someone says, I love God and hate his brother. He's a liar. For he does not love his brother who him has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. So what we covered, we're not afraid of God. We love, which is here surely an indicative statement, not an exhortation. In verse 7, John said, Beloved, let us love one another. He's given an encouragement here, let us love one another. Here he's just saying, we love. That's, we're Christians, that's simply what we do. It's part of our nature. John makes a general affirmation about God's people. One, grunt, one great characteristic, he says, is that we, uh, it's not that we fear, but that we love. The reason is that the fir- he first loved us. God's love was primary. All true love is a response to his initiative. John repeats the truth as he asserted in verse 10. Fear lives within us by nature and needs to be driven out. As verse 18, it's to be cast out. But this agape love, this God-like love, on the other hand, does not reside in our fallen nature. Our very capacity to love, whether the object of our love be God or our neighbor, is due entirely to his prior love for us 
and in us. I hope you understood this. Fear is just an inherent part of us. This is who we are as human beings. But this capacity of loving sacrificially, that's not from us. That is purely from God. That's why John set the foundation that we saw next last week, that the Spirit, when he came to us, he started producing this love that is now being matured in us. In verse 20, love for God then expressed itself not only in a confidence attitude toward him, the word of fear, but in a loving concern for our brothers and sisters. So we saw the confidence that we have before God, but now we're saying that we have this loving concern for others. The perfect love that drives out fear drives also hatred out. If God's love for us is made complete when we love one another, as we read in verse 12, so is our love for God. John does not keep his word here. He's not um, a very shy person. He's just black and white, plainly so. If you're hating someone and saying to love God, you're a liar. He's done that a few times. As even Tim read it before. Ver, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. What does he say? If someone says, I have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. That's a liar. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's a lie. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 4. And there's more lie here. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, he is what? A liar, and the truth is not in him. Now here's the person on the examination says the one thing, but does another that contradicts his words. Here the person um, with the lips, he says, I love God, but in his heart and actions, he hates his brother. John's verdict is quick, clear, and to the point. He's a liar. John's logic is flawless. It is what we call the lesser to the greater analogy. The gist is that if you do not have the ability to love the brother you can see, it is impossible to love the God you have not seen. If you can't love something tangible that you see, you can't love something that you cannot see. If you do not manage to love his creatures, then you cannot love the creator. If you do not have the capacity to love his children, then you cannot love their father. John John Stott is right when he notes, it is obviously easier to love and serve a visible man than an invisible God. If we fail, this easier task is absurd to claim success in the harder. God calls us to walk in the truth, and that involving, involves loving God and loving others. If how a person behaves contradict what he says, he's a liar. There's no other way around it. To claim to know God and have fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness of disobedience, it is a lie, as we read in chapter 1 and 2. To claim to possess the Father while denying the Son, the deity of the Son, is also a lie. And then John moves on to say, to claim to love God while hating brothers is also a lie. We may insist that we are Christian, but habitual sin, denial of Christ, and selfish hatred would expose us as liars. 
Only holiness, faith, and love can prove the truth of our claim to know and possess the love of God. It is ludicrous for a person to say that he loves God while he hates his brother. And it should be clear from the fact that he does not see their brother. This verb indicates not only they can see his brother, that he has constantly seen their brother. It's a repeated action. It's not just, oh, I saw them once, I know them, um, I, I just have a, an issue. No, it's that they see them every day. This is a person they're in contact with. He has seen continually before his eyes with simple opportunity to serve him in love. It is obviously easier to love and serve a, vi- a visible human being than an invisible God. If you fail the easier task, it is absurd to, cl- to claim success in the harder. It is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God but neglects his image, which is right before his eyes. As a commentator puts it out, he says, this cannot express not so much the person's incapacity to love God as a proof of he he does not. It is easy to deceive ourselves. The truth, however, is plain. Every claim to love God is a delusion if it is not accompanied by unselfish, and practical love for our brothers and sisters. How many Christians, I want to take a, a moment here, how many Christians really believe that it's easier to love man than God? Possibly it's a very small number. For our natural inclination, it is to think that it is easier to love God simply because he's worthy of our love, right? God is lovable. That is difficult to love men because they are not lovable or lovely. Yet, this passage says exactly the opposite, implying that unless we're really loving our Christian brothers and sisters at at the horizontal level, we're deluding ourselves in regard to what we consider to be our love for God on the vertical. Unless we love men and women, we cannot love God. Unless we actually do love them, we do not love the one who created them in whose image we were created. Lastly, verse 21 here, he says, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. There is the previous verse, the folly of the liar's position is seen not only its, its inherent inconsistency, but in the fact that the love for God and love for our brother form one single command. Chapter 3, verses 23 here. What does it say? This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. John sees one command here, the love and faith for God and and the love for others. They're one command. Jesus himself taught this. It was he who united Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 and Leviticus 19.18, and then he declared that all the law and the prophets hung upon them. Let's take a look there, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. You will remember when they were questioning Jesus, and this, the Sadducees was, were questioning the Lord. And they said, teacher, verse 36, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37, what did Jesus answer? 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. He's referring to Deuteronomy 6.4. And then the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So we may not separate what Jesus has joined. Besides, if we love God, we shall keep his commandments, and his command is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And more specifically here in John, to love our brothers. John asks us to accept this obligation that God has led upon us. As often in First John, a statement in verse 20 becomes a commandment. Um, in this command we have from him that he loved, that the one who loves God should also love his brother. We need to lose ourselves in the love of God and as this, that maturing grape that I was talking about, cultivate the sweetness of his spirit toward others. We need to make it a principle of our lives to refuse ungodly talk about others, to reject bitterness, lasting wrathfulness, and restrain harsh and rough speaking. How then can we cultivate this love for one another? I believe that the first step is to identify where, where have you been unloving? Where are you walking like an unbeliever that does not love the people of God? We need to be honest about ourselves. Perhaps is we're lacking patience or in gentleness. Perhaps we're proud. We have proud ways and in, in considerateness toward others. Perhaps we exaggerate or twist the truth when we're talking about them. We best humble ourselves before God and admit the ways, how the things are with us, and accept the fact that we're still accepted by God through the blood of Jesus. But practically speaking, how do we do this? How then can the believer eliminate this fear and, and, and cast out? Cast it out by love. Fear stems from the fear of what either God or people may do or not do to us. If we think of Jesus' summary of the law, and I want you to pay attention to this, we will be reminded that it all boils down to, to this, toward God, love toward God, and love toward man. Love toward God means focusing upon on how one trusts and worship and serve him. And love toward a neighbor focuses upon of a giving relationship instead of a taking relationship. In light of this, we should determine the source of fear and meet it by a proper call of repentance and love. All right, so very practical here. Here are a few questions to help you to think through this. Is the fear basically a fear of God or a fear of man? If someone fears God, is he relationship, this relationship with God should be explored. Does this person genuinely believe God? Is this his faith genuine? Does he understand the biblical teaching about assurance and peace? Now, is there any sin in their life disrupting this relationship with God and quenching their affections for God? Of course they'll be afraid if that relationship has been disrupted. Repentance will lead to a renewed loving service for God. Now, in, if on the other hand, this fear is fundamentally fear of man, the answer is in encouraging the, this person to engage in a loving ministry in which he may give himself to others. Granted, more may be involved, but ultimately fear will vanish only when he has learned to live of a loving concern for his neighbor and not for self. That's what fear is, is a concern with self. 
Love is the opposite. It's when we get out of ourselves and we express it to others. It is interesting to notice that in the scriptures, I I don't know if you ever paid attention to this. Jesus never is said to be afraid. Not once you're going to find this in the New Testament. He never once was afraid. The obvious reasons for that is that his love is perfect. His love is already mature. He was always thinking, how can I love the Father? How can I express my love for the Father? And how can I love others? May we learn from our gentle shepherd. I'm going to close here with a, a couple of examples. Do you remember Peter? And how in, in the, the day of the crucifixion, you know, the, the, the night before, he denied Jesus three times. His confidence was like really down low, right? He did not think he was afraid even of a servant girl that could do him no harm. But fear was taking over his heart. Now, I want to draw your attention. How did the Lord restore Peter? John chapter 21. How did Jesus deal with Peter's fearful problem? How did he deal with his denial? It says that after the resurrection, the Lord appeared to them and made them breakfast. Um, Verse 13 of chapter 21 says, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And this is now the third time that Jesus manifested to his disciples. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Uh, Remember the, the words he said, the Lord was saying, Peter, do you love me sacrificially with this agape love? And Peter answers him, yes, Lord, I love you with the cordial love, with the brotherly love. And Jesus told him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, that I have this brotherly affection for you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. You see, love does something. It is not just a word of mouth. 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know that I have this love less than perfect, but now you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And guess what? The Lord did transform Peter. He did transform and matured his love for God and for his sheep that he was called to, to shepherd. First Peter, you might not be able to go there, but First Peter chapter 4. Here's Peter writing to the churches that are being persecuted and going through suffering. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be sound judgment and be sober in sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. First Peter chapter 4, set verse 7. Verse 8, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Did he learn his lesson? Yes, he did. He's teaching out others. 
Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Action, be hospitable toward one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift in it, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Practically speaking, how does that work? How this love is manifested? Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as the one serving. Love and service connected here. So concluding, according to John 5.19, that which enables a Christian to love is God's prior love for them. He loves us first. Through loving fellowship with God, this responding love matures. It is perfected in us. That one is fearful is indicative in the fact that his love is yet imperfect. He needs to be perfected. Wealth in love produces boldness. Verse 17, this confidence in approaching the Father. And conversely, the more one walks with him, the less fear and the more confidence he has in coming before him, both in judgment and then come in now. Fear and love vary inversely. The more fear, the less love. The more love, the less fear. They tend to seesaw. But the encouraging fact for us believers is that the love is heavier. It is, it casts away. One might wonder, now I'm, I want to ask you this, how did John come to understand such love? You remember that there was a time he was called the son of thunder. He was just quick, Lord, just send fire from heaven. This is the son of thunder. No talking, no, no, no calm spirit. And then now he's the apostle of love. How did that happen? I, I won't read it, but I'll let you read it at home. John just reveled in the fact that he was loved by God. He loved me first. He loved me to the end. I can love others. I mean, you read his letter, his gospel, and he keeps saying, the one whom Jesus loved, the one whom Jesus loved, the one whom Jesus loved. Can you say that? Can you say that you're walking with the shepherd of your soul, that you have been sweetly pressurized into loving more. In the same manner, God is able to deal with us. He knows how just to make the right mixture of circumstances and pressure that will rebuke us and train us to the right amount of sun and breeze to make this fruit of love to mature in us. Both the good and bad circumstances that he brings into our lives. Let's pray. God, we come before you with thankfulness in our hearts, Lord, because you have loved us first. Lord, we did not take the initiative. Our hearts are sinful and prone to wonder and to fear and to be selfish and self-focused. And yet, you took the initiative, Lord, and for that we are thankful. Lord, teach us to be humble and cast out this fear, get out of ourselves and make the path of loving others as you well intended. Lord, bless our week and teach us daily. Help us to, like John, to revel in the fact that we are loved by you day after day after day. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.